been a blessing to be here at the conference uh, today. We're thankful for both the invitation and the opportunity. We're glad to see you all that have gathered and thank you sincerely for your presence with us and the times of fellowship we've had around the food. We're very thankful to Mrs. Thomas for her very kind and generous hospitality. Uh, our brother Martin mentioned in the prayer uh, the property in Northern Ireland. We certainly would value your, your prayers for that. Uh, it has been the mind of the, the Committee of the Sovereign Grace had a testimony for some time uh, that we might buy a property in Northern Ireland. It was a suggestion that uh, Mr. Thomas first made to us a number of years back. So at the end of last year, a suitable property uh, did come up. It took a wee bit of time to work through uh, the purchase of it and the completion of it. And in all of these things, there's a few challenges along the way. And it generally takes a little longer than expected. But we're very thankful that came to completion just towards the end of, of August. Uh, we believe it's a very suitable property. It's well located. Uh, it's in uh, the city of Lisburn in the Crescent Business Park there. It's a property with two storeys and it will be able to facilitate holding uh, a stock of literature uh, in Northern Ireland and also uh, we'll be able to hold some meetings uh, in the property as well. Uh, it'll be large enough to allow us to be able uh, to do that. So there is some work uh, that is needed. Pray for the Lord's direction in all of that. Uh, just to prepare it for uh, use. It'll take a wee bit of time to work through that uh, as well. Uh, we would hope maybe when it is ready to have a, a special opening service just to mark uh, the commencement of, of the use of the property. So we'll be able to make that known uh, whenever uh, we're, we're ready to, to hold that service. I, I know it's a wee bit of a distance for you uh, but we would encourage you to think about coming over maybe for that. As we come over to visit with you here, we would be glad uh, to see you over in Northern Ireland, especially for that, that, that special occasion. So do keep that in mind. And as our brother prayed, uh, that the Lord might use it for the, the furtherance of the work of the testimony. And we pray that uh, an increasing number of people will have a, an interest uh, in studying the prophetic scriptures, getting to know uh, a little more of what the Word of God says about the second coming uh, of, of the Saviour. So we'll just pray together. We'll seek the Lord's face for a moment. Heavenly Father, uh, we bow before thee, we rejoice that your ear is always open uh, to the cry of your people. Thank you for the blessings of today already. We praise thee for your presence with us right throughout this day but especially in the service this afternoon. Thank you for the help that was known, your presence that was felt. We ask, Father, that that will continue. We pray that we might experience it in an even greater way in the meeting tonight, especially as we come to gather around the Word of God. We want to pray, Father, that you'll bless our study of the Scriptures. We're conscious of our need. We would pray, open thou mine eyes, that I may behold great and wondrous things uh, from out of thy law. Lord, at times we're overwhelmed that there's truths that we know so little of, that there's things that we need 
a much clearer grasp and understanding of. Uh, we pray that you will come and be our teacher. We, we cry for light uh, from heaven. We ask earnestly that which I see not, uh, teach thou me. We pray, Father, for all that are gathered in the meeting this evening. Thank you for their presence and support. Pray that you'll encourage every heart. We thank you for the times of fellowship we've known, uh, even around the refreshments a little earlier. We want to pray that each one here will know your presence and help in days to come. We pray that even in these very wicked days, that you'll help us, Father, to be faithful. We remember what the scriptures tell of Enoch, that he lived in such ungodly days, and yet he was a man that was known for his walk with God. We pray, Father, give us grace to walk with thee in this wicked end time age. We pray that our lives will stand out uh, for the Saviour. We pray, Father, for an increasing interest in uh, the things related to the coming again uh, of the Saviour. We pray it will please thee, Father, to stir up that interest, even among your people. And Lord, we would cry earnestly and collectively tonight uh, for the return of the Lord Jesus, even in those words at the end of the book of the Revelation. We plead with thee, even so come, uh, Lord Jesus. Abide with us now. We pray for the anointing of your Spirit, uh, for the ministry of your word. We pray you'll give help and give utterance. And we want to pray, Father, that each of us in the gathering tonight will know the blessing of God in our own hearts and in our own souls. And when the meeting's over and we leave, that we will all be able to say in truth, it was good for us to have been here. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We're taking verse 10 of chapter 12 as our text tonight. Uh, perhaps the best known verse in the chapter, one of the best known verses in the book of Zechariah, mm. Zechariah 12 and 10, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his uh, firstborn. The theme tonight is uh, the final conflict and deliverance. I want to ask you to note at the beginning uh, the opening words of uh, the chapter, uh, the burden of the word of the Lord uh, for Israel. And I point out to you, just to re-emphasize one of the truths that we emphasized a little earlier, uh, we point out that this chapter, uh, chapter 12, commences uh, the final burden of the book of Zechariah. Uh, the prophet here is beginning his final message. And that means that the last three chapters Chapters 12, 13, and 14, uh, they all go together and they contain uh, that message. Can I stress that this is a burden, this is a chapter all about uh, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem? It is interesting to note that Jerusalem is mentioned no less than 52 times 
in the book of Zechariah. And 22 of those references is in these last three chapters. So there's a great emphasis here in chapters 12, 13 and 14 on the city of Jerusalem. And 11 of those references are here in this chapter 12 uh, alone. Now remember that this is a chapter of 14 verses. So that is almost one mention of Jerusalem for every verse in the chapter. So it is very clear the prophet has much to tell us in this book, and especially in this chapter before us tonight, chapter 12. The prophet has much to tell us here about uh, Jerusalem. And just so that there's no doubt, uh, let me point out that it is literal Jerusalem. It is the actual city that has been spoken of here in this chapter. Uh, just look at verse 9. And it shall come to pass in that day that I uh, will seek to destroy all the nations that come against uh, Jerusalem. So the prophet speaks here of nations, nations of the earth uh, coming against Jerusalem. And so just be clear that it's it's not the church that has been spoken of. It is uh, actual Jerusalem, the capital city uh, of Israel. And can I also point out, uh, by way of introduction, that uh, we're not left to guess about the time that these events in chapter 12 will come upon Jerusalem. If you note the opening words of verse 3, and in that day. Our brother, when he did the reading a little earlier, uh, did very well to emphasise the repetition of that statement through the chapter. And I underline for you tonight that in this last burden of the book of Zechariah, these final three chapters, those words, and in that day, are repeated 16 uh, times. So there's great emphasis upon this particular day. And that is the day of the Lord. It is the day of Messiah. And brethren and sisters, uh, the prophet here, he brings us right to uh, the very end of time. And at that time, at the very end, Jerusalem will be the centre. It will be the centre of world attention. And it will be the centre of uh, world events. And in this chapter, uh, God reveals to us just think of that, God in his uh, mercy has been pleased to reveal to us what is going to take place in Jerusalem at that time of uh, the end. And we want for a few minutes at the close of the conference tonight to identify and to consider uh, some of those very significant events uh, that will play out in Jerusalem uh, at the end of uh, this age. Can I mention to you first of all uh, the siege at Jerusalem. If you look at verse 2, uh, we're told, Behold, remember when you see the word behold, it's like a stop sign. It's something significant that the Lord wants us uh, to pay attention to. He says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. When they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against uh, Jerusalem. So here Jerusalem is under attack. This is the final 
the last great battle of the age. What is mistakenly called or described uh, in many church circles as the Battle of Armageddon. Some of you might remember that I spoke on that subject at these meetings uh, last October. And I remind you that Armageddon is the gathering place in the northern part of Israel. It's the gathering place of the armies. It is some 80 miles north of the city of Jerusalem. But the battle itself, the final battle, is at Jerusalem. Antichrist and his armies will attack Jerusalem and they will attack with a desire to wipe out uh, the city of Jerusalem and to wipe out the Jewish people. In the previous chapter, the previous message, we highlighted that little statement, the flock of slaughter. And brethren and sisters, that will be the desire of uh, Antichrist. They, they will want to slaughter all in Jerusalem. They will want to slaughter all in Israel. If you think of Psalm 83, there is the cry, let us cut them off from being a nation. And that will be the desire of all those engaged in this battle. They want to cut Israel off. They want to wipe the nation from off the face of uh, the earth. It is interesting, the use of the word uh, siege, uh, there in verse 2. Uh, the verse says, when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against uh, Jerusalem. Uh, that little word siege, it is actually the last mention of the word siege in the Bible. And that is appropriate. Because this is the last siege, this is the last battle of the age uh, before the Saviour comes again. And the word siege gives the idea that these armies met with resistance at Jerusalem. The Jews fought back, or will fight back, as you would expect. Remember that they are a very formidable army. Uh, this attack then on Jerusalem wasn't immediately successful. It took time, it took uh, effort uh, for them to break through into the city itself. If you think of the siege of Jerusalem uh, by the Assyrians in the days of King Hezekiah, remember that all of those things are a picture of the end. That siege in the days of Hezekiah is a picture of these events that we are reading about in the prophecy of uh, Zechariah. And notice also what is said uh, at the end of verse 3. Though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. So this army is a confederacy. It is an army that is made up of troops from a number of nations. The earth that is spoken of there, of course, is uh, the Roman earth. It is not from every nation uh, internationally. These will be soldiers from the nations of the revived Roman Empire, uh, from the final formation uh, of the European Union, and it will be an army with Antichrist at its head. So it's a little here then about the siege uh, at Jerusalem. Think as well of what we read in the chapter about the saving of uh, Jerusalem. If you look at verse 8, we're told in that day, 
shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Remember again the verse that we <coughs> emphasized and dwelt upon in the earlier session, chapter 9, verse 16. And the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his uh, people. Jerusalem will not be defeated by this attacking army. Uh, Jerusalem and Israel will be saved. Saved from defeat. Saved from their enemies. And it will not be the Israeli army uh, that will save them at that time. In 1969, at the time of the Six-Day War, the Israeli army won a great victory that was heralded around the world. But there will be no repeat of such a mighty deliverance here by the Israeli army. Nor will any other nation or any other group of nations save them at that time. It will be the Lord himself. It will be divine intervention. Remember the words that are recorded of Israel in the Old Testament? Uh, the Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. And that's what will happen. That's what will happen in Jerusalem uh, at this time of the end. We're told, in that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Uh, I emphasize those words again that God shall save them in that day. Chapter 14 as well teaches in the verse 3, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. So the scriptures are clear. It will be the Lord himself that will defend uh, Israel and Jerusalem. It will be an act of divine intervention. In fact, it will be the greatest act of divine intervention that this world has ever seen and will ever know whenever the Lord comes down, uh, comes, comes again and comes down uh, to deliver Israel. Now let me say, I don't want to stray into someone else's chapter, but if you look at chapter 14, verse 2, take time to look at it later, it actually gives the details there in that verse of the enemy's attack on Jerusalem in the battle uh, that we've been thinking about just in in the previous point. But look at two, the two things especially that the Lord will do when he comes to save Jerusalem. For one thing he will defend Jerusalem. If you look again at verse 8, in that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the Lord's coming to defend uh, the city. That means that they will be undefeatable. Several times uh, the Psalms record of Israel, God is my defense. And you think of that. No army, doesn't matter which army it is, what weaponry they have, how well equipped they might be. No army has any hope whenever God is your defense. And that will be especially true of Israel in that day. You think of Israel in the wilderness at night. God was a wall of fire. He was their defense. That's the reason why the Egyptians couldn't attack Israel on the night that they pursued them out of Egypt. So the Lord will defend Jerusalem. 
But also look at verse 9 because we see that the Lord will also destroy uh, the armies, destroy uh, the enemy. Uh, verse 9 says, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against uh, Jerusalem. So the Lord will not only defend Jerusalem and defend Israel, but he will destroy the nations that have attacked it. And he will destroy them in the most fearful manner. This is what chapter 14 verse 12 <coughs> records. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. And their eyes shall consume away in their holes. And their tongues shall consume away in their mouth. It's not a, a startling verse of scripture. It's nearly as if they will just melt away. It's not a solemn prospect. But let me make it clear that that is not speaking about an atomic or a nuclear weapon. That is not what will take place. It will be the presence of Christ himself uh, that will destroy the enemies of Jerusalem and the enemies of Israel. Remember Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica said, The Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. That verse in the context in Thessalonians describes the fate of Antichrist. But there will be a similar fate uh, for his armies as well. They will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. You remember that Paul said of the unsaved at that time that he is coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. So the Lord Jesus will destroy his enemies and he will destroy them in a most uh, fearful uh, fashion. Notice in this chapter that there is three figures uh, that is used of Jerusalem. In verse 2 it speaks of a cup of trembling. You think if you have a cup of tea in your hand with a hot liquid within it and the cup is trembling you could do yourself harm, you could scold yourself. So it's described as a cup of trembling. It's also described in verse 3 as a burdensome stone that could cut you in pieces. A little further down the chapter in verse 6, mention is made of a torch of fire. That would burn those that handle it. And the Lord's message is clear. The Lord's message is unmistakable. The nations that come against Jerusalem at that time will do so to their own hurt and do so to their own ruin. Judgment of a certain and of a singular manner will await them. Can I remind you of the words of Psalm 121? Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. Let me stress as you think of those words. We often apply that text uh, to ourselves uh, personally. And there's great comfort in being able uh, to do that. 
But remember that ultimately, uh, those words and what the psalmist is saying there, those words apply to Israel. Never forget, brethren and sisters, that the Lord is watching over Israel, over the nation. He will keep them. He will keep the nation uh, of Israel. Just before moving on, <coughs> let me highlight the references uh, in the chapter to the horses. In verse 6 it says, In that day, notice again the emphasis, the time, in that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment, and his rider with madness, and I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah, and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. Some interesting references there to the horses. The Lord will smite the horses, the horses in the battle, with astonishment and with blindness. And remember, I emphasize to you the opening words of the text in that day. So he's speaking of the end time. He's speaking of the final conflict. So I ask you the question, will the battle be on horseback? Will it be fought in what we might call the old-fashioned way? Will all the oil have run out and we will have to go back to using horses once again? There's a lot of talk about the fuel. You think just of this week in the Prime Minister's announcement about easing some of the restrictions that were previously in place. Well, we can't be dogmatic about it, but it's interesting that the Lord records. He actually records in the chapter what will happen to the horses and how they will be affected in the battle in that day. So that's a little bit about the saving of Jerusalem. Think of the third place of the Saviour in uh, Jerusalem. In the middle of verse 10, our text, it is declared, They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. This is a very clear reference to the Lord Jesus, to the coming of the Saviour. It's a reminder of his sufferings, especially the wounds that pierced him, the nails in his hands and his feet, the spear in his side, the crown of thorns on his head. Just take a moment to ponder as you think of those wounds, the piercings in his body. Just think of how he loved you and think of how he suffered in order to save you and in order to redeem you. But the verse is especially revealing to us what the Jews, the Jewish people, will do uh, when the Saviour returns. They will look. They will look upon him. And as they look, they will see the Saviour's wounds. And they will recognise him as their Messiah. And they will be reminded that it was the Jewish people, it was their nation that was responsible for, that was guilty of inflicting those wounds on the Lord Jesus when they rejected the Saviour and whenever they cried, crucify him. Notice the emphasis in the verse, whom they have pierced. So it is stressing Israel's guilt in the sufferings and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I stress that uh, some will suggest that this prophecy in Zechariah 12 and 10 was fulfilled 2,000 years ago at the cross, at the first advent of 
the Lord Jesus Christ. After the soldiers pierced his side with uh, the spear. Do you remember that John records, and again another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. That is clearly this verse, Zechariah 12 and 10. And many say that was the fulfilment of it, but it was not. The verse as quoted by John is just a partial fulfilment uh, of those words. Let me point out for you, in John 19 verse 36, referring to what the soldiers did, it says, for these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. That's a reference to Psalm 34 verse 20. But notice it clearly says that the scripture should be fulfilled. But in the next verse, verse 37, where Zechariah 12 and 10 is quoted, the verse reads, again another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. The Holy Ghost doesn't say that what the soldier did at the cross was the fulfillment of the prophecy. Remember, it's important to read the verses carefully. There is a distinction that is made when both of those verses are quoted in John chapter 19. There's a distinction that is made. It was at the cross that Israel pierced their Messiah. And those around the cross saw the wounds, they saw the piercings. But the final and the complete fulfillment of Zechariah 12 and 10 is yet future. It will take place at the second coming, the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible makes that uh, very clear to us. In Revelation 1 and 7, uh, John the Apostle said, Behold, there's the word behold again, something of note. He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Notice the words there in the middle of that verse, and they also which pierced him. So it's clear that verse in Revelation, it applies to the second coming. He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. The time is when the Lord Jesus returns again to Jerusalem. And John is teaching that when the Savior comes again, everyone will know it. His coming won't be a secret coming. He says, every eye shall see him. His coming will be so bright and so clear that everyone on the earth will see it happen. And also, or especially, the Jewish people who were responsible for his death will also see the Saviour return. And that sight of Christ will have a deep impact upon the Jews. For one thing, they will realise that the one that they rejected, the one that they put to death, was in fact their Messiah, was in fact the Saviour of the world. They will see then how wicked, how dreadfully wicked their actions were. And at that moment, salvation will come to the Jewish people. This is the time that all Israel will be saved, because that look will be more than a mere glance. It will be the look of the soul. It will be the look of faith. 
in the Bible, looking to Christ and believing on Christ are often uh, the same thing. If you look carefully at John chapter 3, looking to the brazen serpent is an example of believing on Christ. You think of the text that Mr. Spurgeon was saved through. Isaiah 45 and 22, it declares, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. You know the story. Spurgeon looked that day, looked that day to Christ, and he was saved. And so too will every Jew alive at the return of the Saviour. What a prospect that is. I'm sure you know the hymn, There is life for a look at the crucified one. And I urge you to do that today. If you've never come to Christ, never looked uh, to him uh, by faith for uh, salvation. So that's the Saviour uh, at Jerusalem. Think of the fourth place of the supplications in Jerusalem. Look at the opening part of our text, verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And notice it's in the plural, supplications. This is a very significant verse of scripture, especially in relation to the second coming of Christ. Can I stress to you that in the verse, uh, it speaks of all three persons of the Trinity. All three persons of the Trinity working together for the salvation of the Jewish remnant. It says they shall look upon me, that is the Saviour, and I will pour, that is the Father, the Spirit of grace and supplications. So there is the Holy Ghost. So all three persons of the Trinity working together for the salvation of uh, the Jewish remnant. But let me ask you to notice carefully the mention here of the Spirit. It's important to see that the Spirit is spoken of in this context. Remember, this is right at the end. In that day, the day of the Lord, the day of Messiah. So it's right at the time of the end. It's especially at the end of the, the great tribulation period. And as you think of that, notice here, the Holy Spirit is still in the world. He has not been taken away. Be in no doubt that the Holy Spirit will be at work in the world right throughout this age to uh, the very end. And he's here described as the spirit of grace and supplications. And remember that grace and supplications come from uh, the Holy Spirit. And that means that the Israelites in that day will be saved the same way that every other person is saved. They will be saved by the grace of God. The spirit of grace and of supplications. Saved by the grace of God. Not by their religious rituals. Not by their religious ceremonies. Not by keeping the, the Jewish law. Uh, the ceremonial law or the moral law. Does Israel deserve to be saved? No they do not deserve to be saved. But God in his grace will give to them what they do not uh, deserve. The word supplication is a word that we often hear, we often use in relation to prayer, especially in prayer meetings. We talk about supplications. But let me emphasize that supplication 
is a particular type of prayer. Remember that not all prayer is the same. Supplication is entreating God for mercy. You think of the prayer of the publican in the temple. God be merciful to me, a sinner. That, that's supplications. That is what the Israelites uh, hear. Uh, that, that's what will take place in Jerusalem. They will be pleading with God for his mercy. They will cry out at the sight of Christ. At his return, the nation that rejected him, the nation that treated him so shamefully, will cry out for mercy. And that prayer will be abundantly answered. God, the Holy Ghost, will pour out the spirit of grace and supplications on Israel at that time, at the time of the end. You contrast what the Israelites cried out at his first advent. Away with him. We will not have this man to rule over us. His blood be upon us and upon our children. It's not a fearful statement. But you contrast that with what uh, Israel will cry out uh, at the second advent. At that time they will cry out for God's mercy. For God to be merciful uh, to them. So supplications in uh, Jerusalem. And the final thing we'll highlight is the sorrow in Jerusalem. Uh, if you look at verse 11, it's also mentioned at the end of uh, verse 10. Uh, let me just pick up the reading towards uh, the end of verse 10. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad Rimmon in the valley of Megiddo. So here is evidence of the true repentance of Israel, of the Jewish people. There will be deep mourning. There will be godly sorrow that will be evident among the nation. We're told there will be great mourning. Look at the emphasis that's placed upon it. There will be a period of national mourning in Israel. Israel will have godly sorrow for their sins and especially their sin of the rejection of their Messiah, the rejection of uh, the Savior. We need to pray, brethren and sisters, for such a mourning over sin in our own nation. We need to pray that God will bring this land of ours once more uh, to a time of national repentance. The morning is spoken of uh, in verse 11 of Hadad Rimmon in the valley of Megiddo. That is the morning that took place after the untimely death of uh, Josiah, one of the most loved uh, kings of Judah. Remember, Josiah was killed in battle uh, by Pharaoh Necho. And it is given here, the reason it is cited here in verse 11 is because it is the greatest example of sorrow. The greatest example of national sorrow and mourning in Israel's history. This is what Second Chronicles records about that mourning. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. And Jeremiah 
lamented for Josiah. And all the singing men and the singing women spake of Josiah in their lamentations to this day and made them an ordinance in Israel. And behold, they are written in the lamentations. So it was a great period. Perhaps the greatest period of national mourning, of universal national mourning in Israel's history. But, it, but Israel's sorrow when they see and when they recognize their Messiah will far exceed even the mourning of the nation uh, for King uh, Josiah. Notice that Megiddo is mentioned uh, in that verse 11, the valley of Megiddo. Remember that Armageddon is the hill of Megiddo. So that reference to Megiddo brings us to Revelation 16, brings us to the time of the end, the gathering of the armies there against Jerusalem. But remember that on that day, that Israel's great king will not be defeated. Josiah was defeated. Josiah probably was very foolish to get involved in that battle with Pharaoh Necho. But on that day, Israel's great king will not be defeated as Josiah was. On that great day, he will be the conqueror in the city of uh, Jerusalem. Remember, he lead the army out of heaven, going forth, uh, conquering and uh, to conquer. Just in closing, can I remind you that the name Zechariah, the name of the prophet, that under inspiration wrote this book, Zechariah means God will remember. And that, brethren and sisters, is what this chapter teaches. It teaches us that God will remember. God will remember Jerusalem. He is revealed in the Bible and he's revealed in this prophecy as the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, as the one who is jealous for Jerusalem. That's stated in the very first chapter. And he will never forget. He will never forget his covenant with the Jewish people. He will never forget his chosen ancient people of Israel. He will never forget Jerusalem. And we learn here in this chapter uh, something of how God will remember Israel and Jerusalem especially at the time of uh, the end. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. We thank you again for your presence. We thank you for your interest, your attention tonight. And we pray that these messages will have been of help and a blessing to you today. Thank you.